When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum. A podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Hey everyone, hope that you have had a great week. We are excited to bring you an episode today. Uh, Sebastian, I want to know your favorite non, uh, non-academic author you're reading right now. Oh, favorite, favorite non-academic author. Okay, Not even yeah. remotely academic, right? The, if there's one author that I read a lot of their books is James Martin, who is a, a priest and writes a lot about theology and like with like, hot not hot topics but like topics he wouldn't like he has a book on like humor and religion his thesis is like oh jesus is actually a really funny character but like we don't understand it because we don't get humor from the bible and i'm like that makes that's cool because i think that jesus should be funny because you know (laughs) why not (laughs) so uh anyways that kind of stuff oh you know lgbtq stuff and and catholicism which is obviously you know i like it that's cool yeah anyways what's yours uh, so I, you know, obviously set you up for this question because I already had an answer prepared. So it's unfair from the get-go, but I've just been, since summer started, li- listening to, not just reading, mm-hmm. uh, Alistair Reynolds, who's just like, I'm like, he's like the most elite nerdy sci-fi writer you could imagine. And I love it because <laughs> the guy's like some, I guess it's kind of unfair to say that he's not an academic. I think he has like a PhD in, I don't know, some yeah, I mean, now, like what, astrophysics what or something, <laughs> but then he's writing like sci-fi stuff. So like, it's like the smartest person you know wrote like a, a book about what like are the themes? Travel. What are the themes of the books? Just like large distances. I don't know. It's like nerdy sci-fi that's like uh, tries to be like hard, so it's not like uh, mm. you know people aren't teleporting from one place to another. So when he talks oh. about like getting from one place to another, he like appropriately or at least I think appropriately accounts for like relativity and whatnot. Okay, like time okay. passing. Interesting. So like bo- boring science fiction. I'm just kidding. <laughs> boring science fiction, unless you're an elite dweeb, and then right. then, then you'll, you'll love it. What about you, Jess? Oh gosh, I mean, the only non-academic books I'm reading lately are kids' books. I have a six-year-old oh. and a three-year-old, so my my or seven-year-old now. Um, my seven-year-old is working her way through Harry Potter, um, so I've been mostly oh, listening to that with her lately or reading That's it to fantastic. her. Have you read Harry Potter yourself? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, gotcha. so it, I mean, it was. A while ago when I read the, the I, mean, I think I read it when it first came out in terms of like the whole series. Um, right. So we've been working back through it together and, and she's that she's home from school today and she, they finished school yesterday. So she's watching, she's like binging all the, all the movies today. Um, oh. It's pretty much her plan. But since she's I'm sorry to keep you from that. That, sound, that sounds fantastic actually. <laughs> Wait, do, but does she, has she already read the books before she saw the movies or no? Yeah. So yeah. So she's reading okay. them first and then watching the movies afterward. Um, so we're, we're working. I always, I, I, I'm very curious about, like reactions to people who are first knowing about series that like we already know. Like I want to see somebody watch for the first time Empire Strikes Back and see if they actually react like, oh my God, that's a spoiler. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler. But, but no, that's definitely, that's what you get to do with small kids is watch them cool. have like those big giant reactions oh. um, to books or to movies or to things. It, it's super fun. Yes. That is cool. So. That's exciting. So. Um, my sister, uh, she has a toddler and she's reading a ton of books because the toddler likes books. 
And she was like, you know what? I want to be a, a kid's book author because <laughs> she's like, has so many ideas about this book. And I didn't realize it's like, it's a huge industry, I guess. I didn't realize oh, yes. this whole thing. Yeah. There's, there's like, it's a lot of small producers. I don't know. It's really interesting economics in that way. And despite that, there's a lot of terrible ones out there. So oh, when really? you get a good kid's book, you're like, I got to put that in the place oh, where the kid's likely to grab it from. Okay. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Lava yeah. Lama in Pajama. Um, All right. So our special guest today is uh, Jess Calarco. Jess is an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, Her research program focuses on systems of inequality, how policies and institutions cater to those with power and privilege while disadvantaging others. Uh, Professor Calarco has two books, Negotiating Opportunities, and a very relevant one for this podcast, A Field Guide to Graduate School, uh, which is all about the hidden curriculum. Uh, It's related to the topics we're going to discuss today as well. Uh, just thank you for being here. Uh, how are you doing? Doing okay. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's good to chat with you both. Thanks. All right. So before we get into it, we want to know uh, a fun fact that you can share about yourself beyond the fact that we are currently keeping you from binging Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a fun fact. That's a good question. I would say I, I run every day. I'm happy to talk more about that as part of workflow, um, but, but, but pretty, mu- pretty much every day. I rarely miss more than like two or three days a year. But, wow. That's awesome. So do you have like a route in Bloomington? Do you go up and down with this? Pretty f- much. Yeah. I live, I live about three miles South of campus and there's a lot of kind of rolling Hills and, um, and parks and stuff. So there's, a, there's Bloomington is terrific for trail running for kind of path and trail running in terms of um, like some, some decently hilly Hills for Indiana. Um, and then some <laughs> plenty of wooded areas and pretty parks and stuff too. So. Do you, are you concentrated on like the pace, how long you run or the time? I'm not, I'm not a competitive runner. I like, I don't, I run more just like to have mental space. It's, it's my thinking time um, for the most part. Um, And so I try, I I usually, I usually do like between four and six miles a day, depending on how much time I have. Oh, that's, Um, but it's, um, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty decent run. And do you listen Um, to stuff or? Mostly podcasts. Um, So sometimes I kind of tune them out after a while if I'm thinking about stuff or I'll turn them off. Um, But I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Cool. That's awesome. And and by the way, I mean, all of our guests are special, but I feel like Jessica is especially special because <laughs> the, the subtitle of her book, by the way, guys, is Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum. So it could not be more appropriate. She's probably needs to be the author of this podcast. Yeah, she's going like, to take over from yeah, here. Yeah, it was embarrassing that I found out about this after the fact. But I mean, I'm glad I found it out through through this method. Um, definitely recommend uh, the book, A Field Guide to Grad School. Um We'll put the link in the show notes of how you can obtain it. Before we get into topic and talking about workflow, another thing we like to do is just uh, have give you an opportunity to promote uh, anything you want. It could be a paper you're working on. It could just be anything. So uh, is there anything you'd love to discuss before we get into I mean, you guys have already mentioned the hidden curriculum book. I mean, I think that's certainly most relevant to your listeners is, is, is the, um, the, the field guide to grad school book, which essentially, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a field guide in the sense that it uncovers sort of key parts of the hidden curriculum. I mean, it's, um, it turned out to be way longer than I anticipated. It's like <laughs> 150 pages. I was grateful that my publisher was willing to like, just let me keep putting more stuff in there. Um, but it also tries to get at this question of like, so, so why is this hidden curriculum hidden? And what are the consequences of that? And how does this amplify the existing patterns of inequality in academia? So I'm hopeful that it's also a book that not only is a, a practical resource um, for students or for advisors or for those who are considering grad school, um, but that it is also um, kind of reassuring and validating for those folks who have mm-hmm. run up against the hidden curriculum and, and have felt like it um, diminishes their experience in graduate school or has pushed them out of opportunities um, that they might otherwise have. That's that's great. And here, just to highlight a couple of chapter titles, just so you can get a little bit enticed, for example, is like, 
choosing a program, staying in track on your program, doing research and funding, finding funding, that seems like a big one, publishing and promoting your work, talking about your research, going to conference, navigating the job market. I feel like those, those are very like big topics that um, there's, there's a lot of really cool information here. And the other thing that I want to highlight too is that uh, even though there's a lot of um, specificity, sometimes across fields, there's, there's a lot of things I think in this book that are like very generally applicable to, to most Feels. I mean, I guess only the social sciences is the thing that I know the most, but um, but even probably even even bigger than that. So so uh, another you know shout out for um, for the content of this book. Let's dive next into your workflow. Um, we'd just love it if you could talk a little bit about what you do every day, how you make it all happen. You've alluded a little bit to the fact that running is integral to this, but what other things? are integral and how often do you achieve your ideal day? Uh, I don't know if there is an ideal day, especially now with two small kids at home and post tenure with a lot of service stuff and especially in the midst of a pandemic. And I kind of wish, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there is an ideal day anymore. Um, I mean, certainly, I think if you'd asked me this question a couple of years ago, especially like before the pandemic, before I had kids, I was much more organized in terms of workflow. I mean, I'm, I'm organized now in a different way. Um, like I kept much more detailed to-do lists. I had much more detailed like long-term plans and like mapped out things. I used to like do time tracking. I don't do any of that anymore. That just takes <laughs> up too much time. I mean, I, I still have like a whiteboard on my fridge that keeps track of like the, the, the various writing, at least most, I don't, I actually can't fit all the writing projects on the whiteboard anymore. I've gotten the future. <laughs> wow. it's probably a sign that I have too many writing projects. Um, but anyway, so like I try to keep track of like roughly where things are, but I don't update it as often as I should. I have like a, a, a Word doc on my um, laptop mm -hmm. home screen. That's kind of like, here's my general to-do list. Mm -hmm. If it mm -hmm. has a date or a deadline that's attached to it, I'll usually put it on my my um my outlook calendar um but i'm not like i've tried things with more bells and whistles i've tried trello i've tried um a bunch of other kind of to-do list type of apps but i've never really found one that like i've liked enough to really stick with it um and i think for me really what matters most productivity wise is, is just keeping to as much of a routine as possible um and that's for me where things like running come in and, and then also like i so i wake up every day at, like between 5 and 5 15 um and i try to write for at least an hour before my kids wake up mm. um it's it's the time when the house is dark and it's quiet and nobody needs anything and i'm not actually getting very many emails most of the time right. and i can just sort of focus and be in the zone and that's the time when I try to do my like my writing so almost all of my writing happens between like 5 and 6 30 a.m um at least in terms of like the big heavy lifting stuff right. um and then from there it's like kid stuff and then going for a run and then the bulk of my day is like teaching stuff and service stuff and committee work and kind of stuff like this so like, like kind of random right. things come up right. today sort of triaging those I mean I think one of my maybe productivity strategies is to try to spend as little time on email as possible. Um, I try to sort of maybe fit it in in between meetings if I have time. Um, otherwise, it's the thing that I do when I'm exhausted and I'm on the couch at night watching TV from like 9 to 11, mm. like maybe trying to bang out as many emails as I can get done. Um, so I Has that always been the case or you started, like when did you make that conscious decision I guess, of not, not, you know, caring about email? I mean, it's not that I don't care about it. It's well, just, <laughs> no, I know. It's a good, no, it's a good point. Um, I think that's, especially during the pandemic, it's gotten harder to stay on top of the volume of email. I teach um, very large classes. So I teach like a Oof. 250 student intro social class. Um, and when that went all virtual, at yeah. the volume 
mill between that and then just the general university shifting online. I, like I, I could spend all day on email and yeah. still, and still barely make a dent. Like there's just the volume of email during the pandemic has, has exploded. I have like a totally off the board question that we could cut if this is no good, but like given what you study and the pandemic, have you noticed that like a certain set of your students are like reaching out to you via email? Whereas like, you're just like not hearing from other students. Cause anecdotally, that's what happened to me. Um, yes. Oh, absolutely. I think there's huge differences. I mean, I haven't tracked it systematically, um, but my sense is that especially if we're talking about asynchronous online classes, yes. the students that are going to reach out are disproportionately going to be those students who would have, I mean, other, they're, they're probably the same students who would disproportionately come to office hours, who would mm. disproportionately come and kind of talk to you after class. Um, but it means, especially with the pandemic being what it is, there's even less opportunity to um, to connect with those students who are now even harder to reach um, than they would be otherwise. And so it's certainly, I mean, I try to do the, what I can to sort of look at how students are engaging with the class and follow up with them, send emails and kind of check in and say, hey, it looks like you haven't done some stuff in a while. Can I see it? Like, is everything doing okay? I do a lot of surveys to kind of check in with them that way. Um, but it's hard with such big classes and especially with- two fifty, yeah. like, that's nice with 30, but like- 250, Yeah, 250 that's... is hard. It's, and with, yeah. it's me and two graduate student assistants and so three three people for 250 students is, right. is not enough and it's right. yeah yeah that's interesting you know you said that you separate this like golden hour to work in your writing do you know beforehand what what are you working on then or like how do you select what you're working on is it like a week thing month things or is it like every day is a different project type of thing so, I mean, like I said before, I'm working on way too many writing projects right now um, between, so I've been doing a lot of data collection during the pandemic um, around sort of families' experiences during the pandemic, family decision-making during the pandemic, kind of building off of a project that my team and I had started back in 2018, looking at sort of how par parents with new babies make decisions about things like vaccines and screen time and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so a lot of that became super relevant during the pandemic, and we were sort of following up with these same parents mm -hmm. um, and then built that out into a big national survey to, to get it sort of some parent decision making so we have a ton of data that we're working through and so working with a bunch of different grad students and a bunch of different colleagues on papers and so lately at least it's mostly been which paper needs the next step mm. it's sort of cycling through kind of who who, who do I owe feedback to um, on, on various projects um, right. I mean if it's I try to I'm working on some book projects too and so I try to carve out time to work on those at least a couple times a week where I'm kind of dipping back into the bigger projects uh, but it's a lot of triage yeah. um, it's a lot of just what needs the next step who <laughs> who, which co-author has has edited? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do you every day do you decide to stop at a time to work uh, from from working, or or is it like nebulous when you stop working? Like at the end of the day, it's when I fall yeah. asleep on the couch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, during during the I mean, I I sure. say that tongue in cheek, but during the pandemic, especially, I mean, there's just so much more work than there are hours in a day. And I mean, I do carve out time. Like when my kids get up in the morning, there's not much I can do for a couple of hours while I'm getting them ready for school and that kind of. And then like I leave at usually three fifteen, three thirty ish to get my daughter from school. Um, and so like that's a hard end wow. to the beginning of the workday. Um, but then I'm back online after they're in bed around eight thirty or so um, wow. for as many more hours as I can do. Um, yeah. What yeah. about, what about weekends? I mean, so I'm mostly, it's mostly, I, I still get up at five and work for an hour or so before the kids get up most of the weekend days. I mean, I wish I didn't have to, but there's, it's hard. Yeah. To be I get it. Yeah. And then the kids have quiet time for like an hour or two in the afternoon. So I'm usually back on email or back on trying to get some stuff done yeah. for a couple hours on weekend days too. Unfortunately, like I said, yeah. I wish I didn't have to, but it's, no, totally. such as the, yeah. That makes sense. 
Today, we want to talk about tips for how to advocate yourself. Um, and let me give you some context to this topic. So Professor Calarco was invited to give a talk uh, at GVA on several topics of the hidden curriculum coming from her book. And there's a part of, of her conversation on how to advocate for yourself that I thought it was really interesting and I wanted other people to hear it. And I'm sure there's other things that everyone should hear from, from her, but you can also read it. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about this particular one. So maybe we can start with the question is, how do you think about advocating for yourself and maybe like why to do it in the first place? Uh, the context of this is that some people would be like, well, I have a mentor and it's a great mentor. Maybe that person is going to advocate for me, et cetera, et cetera. So microphone is on you. Yeah. So, so in the book, I talk about how important it is for students to build a team of mentors and not just to have a single advisor, in part because we all have different strengths. As faculty members, we're good at different things. Some of us are really great at networking. Some of us are really great at feedback. And so having a team of people makes sure that you get all your needs met. But even if you have a, a like one of those unicorn mentors who can do all the things well, and even if you have a terrific team of mentors who can cover all those different mentoring needs, that doesn't necessarily mean that your mentors will just tell you everything that you need to know to be successful in grad school or successful in your careers. I mean, I mean you can think about it as a math problem to some extent and that like you have one or two or three advisors, but your advisors might each have five or 10 or 15 students that they're mentoring along with their own research, along with their own teaching and service commitments, potentially their kids or their partners or other commitments that they're working on. And so, I mean, it's, it's easy for grad students to, to, they're often thinking about their advisors and kind of how their advisors are judging them all the time, but the same <laughs> is not true in reverse. Like your advisors, we don't have time to think about all of you every moment of the day. That's and so, so true. like, and, and so it's like, I mean, that, that what that means then is that for the most part, advisors will often just assume that if they don't hear from their advisees, that they don't need anything. Um, unless they're either explicitly asking for support or they can see, or if your, your advisor can sort of see that you like haven't asked for help, even though you're falling behind on things. Like maybe you were supposed to give them that draft of that dissertation chapter a month ago and they like, it's been radio silence since then. Um, then they might be thinking about you and maybe they're assuming that something's wrong, and then they might also start making some judgments mm. um, in that sense. In that like, if they haven't heard from you, they might be assuming that you are just don't care enough about your work or that you're not motivated. And that it's, it's entirely possible that that's very much not the case. For many students, I mean, it can be really challenging to ask for help, especially, and this is something that I study in some of my other work, is, is sort of the, the challenges that many students and especially students from systematically marginalized groups experience when it comes to not just advocating for themselves, but even just asking for help. If they run mm. into a situation where they're not sure how to do that statistical thing that they have to do for their dissertation, or if they can't make sense of a particular reading that they're supposed to read, or they're not sure how to do some other task that they need to do, it can make it really challenging to ask for help, especially for those students who worry about how they'll be judged for asking, yeah. um, or about how they might create a burden for others um, with the kinds of requests that they might be making. I think that one is like really salient to me because I I do remember myself being like, I got to figure this out and I got to show my advisor that I have figured this out and I feel weird for asking. But but it, it was funny coming from me in the sense that I'm a person and in class, like I, I, I literally feel very confident of being like, no idea what's going on. Can we do it again one more time? But when it came to the advising relationship, I didn't feel comfortable. I think until later, later on, I think in the beginning, it was just like hard. But then maybe later on, I would be a little bit more like, okay, can you send me like signals of where to go if I wanted to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. But um, yeah, I feel like that's, that's very true. Um, 
And I think one thing that also comes to mind is that, I mean, obviously asking your peers is less intimidating than asking your advisors, which is great. Um, but then also even asking uh, some people that are not far off from you academic-wise, but um, maybe they're in a different rank, right? So like people who are just became professors, I think would also be a good like middle ground of what to ask that you feel not so awkward about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think kind of figuring, and that's part of why having a, a full team of people that you're relying on becomes helpful and that there are probably people who aren't as big status differential wise. They're not going to, it's not mm-hmm. just that one big name person in your discipline who like, mm-hmm. even if you're pretty confident asking for help in most situations, asking that person can still feel tremendously stressful given the weight that they carry in your career, given the weight that their recommendation is going to carry. And so, yeah, absolutely. Having other grad students that you can turn to, junior professors, staff members, um, kind of who, whoever you can turn to for, for advice and in navigating those questions, um, if, especially if you're at a place where you feel like you can't get there on your own, uh, yeah. becomes super important. Yeah, absolutely. When we circle back to this question about being your own advocate, what are the things that I should be looking for in terms of like being my own advocate? Yeah, I mean, I would say being your own advocate means like actively looking for ways to help yourself get ahead in your career and then also speaking up and asking others for help when you find that you can't get there on your own. Uh, because like, I mean, when it comes to like the job market, for example, there's a lot of things that you can do on your own um, to kind of give yourself an advantage. You can, if you know that you want an academic job, for example, you can um, kind of spend some time figuring out going to conferences, you can apply for fellowships, um, you can kind of look at other people's CVs and figure out what awards did they apply for, what uh, what kinds of fellowships did they apply for, and kind of trace your own path. And the same thing for non-academic jobs. You can sort of do some research and do some sort of light internet stalking where you're sort of looking up people's CVs and figuring out what do they do or the, like those kinds of things. And so there's stuff you can do on your own, but there's also a lot of times where you can't, you're stuck, kind of stuck at an impasse and you need someone else's help in order to move forward. I mean, that's situations where you like literally need someone's approval or okay or sort of um, like input to get to the next step. Things like letters of recommendation, that's sort of the obvious place. But there's also sort of the less clear cases. I, I mean, maybe it's taking you forever to, to figure out some statistical stuff or maybe um, you need to find some resources Resources, like a, to be able to, um, you need to figure out sort of which conferences to apply to, and you're not sure which one, mm-hmm. whether, whether to, to take this out, or like whether to spend the summer um, doing a paid internship or working with a faculty member on research, and you're not sure like which of these two things makes the most sense. I mean, those are the kinds of places where it, it becomes really critical to reach out and ask for help from someone, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and to know that Doing so becomes important because timely support from your professors or from other people in your mentoring team can kind of help make sure that you either stay on track timeline-wise or get back on track as quickly as possible. And it helps to actually prevent you from ending up in a situation where someone else is judging you or, or kind of making problematic assumptions about you um, Mm-hmm. Because, because it seems like you're off track when really maybe you've spent six months trying to figure this thing out and trying to do it all on your own and working mm-hmm. really hard. But if that's not coming across and if you're not asking for help, then it can put you in the situation where you end up getting judged, unfortunately. Um, and yeah. so that's where it becomes super important to ask. Yeah. So I just, I want to, this is great from the perspective of the student often to do this. And I think even sometimes, like if I were to have heard this, like first starting out, I might've like, been like, that's great. And then like still been afraid to like act upon it. So just like a, a, another angle here mm-hmm. is like new faculty or existing faculty that are learning to advise students. What are ways that we can try to encourage students to do this or put things in place that make it a little more likely that students can take advantage of this good advice? 
That is a super important question. And I think you're absolutely right that, that faculty in particular have a big role to play in signaling to students that they are open mm -hmm. to questions and that they won't judge students for asking. Um, checking in with students. If you haven't heard from someone in a while, um, if, if they are falling off track, not making the assumption that they must just not care and instead saying, hey, <laughs> is there something that you're stuck on? Is there something I can help with? Do you want to set up a meeting not as like a penalty thing, but as like a, hey, let's just talk through whatever you're stuck with right now and let's think if we can brainstorm about next steps. So making yourself available is a big part of it. Modeling a, the idea that it's okay to not know everything, that it's okay to, to, to be at that place where you have questions and have to figure things out, mm -hmm. um, kind of in Admitting that to your students and being open about that, and then actively encouraging them to come to you to ask questions, kind of destigmatizing that kind of uh, that, that kind of help seeking in, in classes, and then also in individual advising relationships, and just making it really clear to students that they can trust you. Um, mm -hmm. Not just saying you can trust me, but really demonstrating that by kind of being available, being willing to offer support, being willing to offer resources, kind of listening. Um, constructively and listening compassionately um, when students are trying to share what they're experiencing and not trying to make assumptions about what's going on with students, um, but really asking those tough questions um, instead and trying to um, understand the, the situations that students are dealing with um, from their perspective as opposed to just jumping in. I can imagine that I've had conversations in the past with colleagues where I mentioned some of this stuff about like being a little more proactive as faculty and the response that I get, it's something of the flavor of that those are the unobservable things that they want the students to do because then there's like, oh, this is a proactive student and that's a good thing for research and blah, 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 blah. And what would you, what's a, and I don't know if what's a good response, but like what would be your go-to talking points when somebody brings those arguments that like, oh, the student that is more proactive is the student, right? That, that is the one that I want to foster because that's who's putting effort and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's important to know that what does it mean that a student is proactive? It's a student that feels entitled to advocate for themselves. And what do we know about who those students disproportionately are? Those are disproportionately going to be students from relatively privileged backgrounds in academia that feel that they have the status and the power to go up and ask questions of whoever they want and that they expect a response in return. And so what I would argue that those faculty members are doing is essentially picking winners um, in the sense that they are that they are treating, advising, like they're investing in the students that come in with the most cultural capital with the most network support with the most kind of exposure and experience in academia they're not they're not actually selecting on motivation what they're probably mm. selecting on is privilege um, mm. and so thinking about what are they really doing when they rely on students to do that work for them and I think it's that's one thing that I see often is faculty members saying well you know what I'm gonna let that be the unobservable I'm gonna let that be the screening tool to see who I work with and who I invest mm. in mm -hmm. um, and what we're doing is just investing in those students who come in knowing more of the hidden curriculum in the first place um, but then uh, the other flip side of that is is essentially faculty members also kind of judging students harshly when they don't have that knowledge and, and kind of treating them unfairly. I, th I mean, I think there's a lot of ways, I feel like I'm rambling, um, but there's a lot of ways that th that kind of behavior can be can be damaging to students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that um, thought as like a framework, right? And I think if you're using this thought and you're trying to say like, how can I avoid sort of uh, compounding on these like existing differences in privilege, but then like another, like a full flip side of that is like, I get afraid that like full coddling is bad too, right? Like if you're giving every one of your students an idea and a data set and like not letting any self-direction take place, like maybe they'll even get a good job because they'll have like a good paper, but it was like secretly you the whole time or something. And like, it's it's such a weird place to be like, where's the balance between like 
fostering independent researchers and like like being a life coach versus you know like I, I don't mm-hmm. know like where mm-hmm. can you no, live in between absolutely I mean I think to your point about over coddling I mean I think there is what I would argue is that we need to be careful that we are not perpetuating the culture of cruelty in academia, that we're never getting to a place when we're advising our students that we are saying, you know what, it was hard for me, so it should be hard for you mm. too. Or that, that it being hard is what makes you a good scholar. Um, I think it is entirely possible for us to give supportive, constructive feedback. And I think it's, it's oftentimes about the way that we frame our feedback. Um, when we're, when we're take, looking at a student's paper or at a student's analysis, instead of saying like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You can say, hey, your argument would be stronger if you did X, Y, and Z, or if you tried, so kind of point, not just pointing out what's wrong, but giving them some suggestions to try to get to a better place. Because so often for students, when they look at that paper and all they see is like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Not only do they not know how to move forward, but now they feel judged and they feel shamed. And so they're not going to go to that faculty member and say, hey, you told me this is wrong, but I don't know how to fix it. And so the more that the faculty member can say, okay, it's not, this is wrong, but like, this could be better if you did this and this and this, or this could be better, come chat with me and we can talk about strategies for moving forward. It's about the way you approach that sort of feedback relationship. Yeah. It's such a hard balance for me too. When I'm thinking about this, like, I agree with you that people are jerks and we should not be jerks. And (laughs) there are ways to do the same thing and be nice. But then at the same time, and I typically don't have a problem with like PhD students with this, or maybe have never had this problem sometimes stuff's just hard. Like it takes a long time to like learn statistics and you have to like get it wrong a bunch before you do it. So like, it's like such like a challenge for me. Cause I like teach an introductory stats class to be like, I promise you this like difficult problem set that you're going to struggle with for hours is like, that's yeah. the way forward. That's the way through this like crazy forest. Right. But at least there I've like thought about it and like other people have thought about it. So I'm like, okay. With that level of like, I guess cruelty for lack of a better term, but like, if I was just like, uh, read this whole textbook, I'm not going to give you lecture notes. That's like needless cruelty, right? So like t- figuring out that way in between, is so, it's so tough. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, I think it's if it's the work that is hard, that's one thing. But if it's like the personal relationships and the interpersonal yes. communications, it's when those are hard that that's a problem. Um, when you're running into toxic relationships, when you're running into mistreatment and, and sort of uh, abuse for the sake of, of power, um, those kinds of things are, are, are where it becomes really problematic. Yeah. I think part of my challenge is like, okay, I do want to go ask for help through my senior people, but I do feel like this weird, but they're the ones who are going to evaluate for tenure. So like, do I want to share my failures, you know, quote unquote? And I get it that I'm supposed to, but I cannot help that there's like a little voice in my head that's like, they're going to judge you. You know, like, so like, am I thinking about it the wrong way? And then they're like, oh, this is why you go to a different team. You know, like, what's, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, and I mean, and this is where so many inequalities in academia actually come from, is that there are often those people in your department that seem more approachable and that seem less judgmental. And oftentimes those are people of color, women that are that seem more approachable, mm-hmm. that seem less threatening, and that we know do a hugely disproportionate share of the service work. And it's for exactly that reason, that they seem less scary <laughs> um, and that they oftentimes are more helpful in the kind of per, like support that they're providing. And so it's it, it, it creates not only inequalities among the people who are getting feedback, um, but also um, um, but also among the people who are providing the support too. In turn, and then mm-hmm. like, who does that allow to have more time to do their research? Who does that allow to have more time to, to, to kind of do the things that get them the actual big rewards in academia? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's, I mean, it's certainly, I think you're absolutely right in pointing out that this is the, the, the power dynamics of academia. Mm-hmm 
make it hard to ask for help, not only for graduate students, but also for junior faculty who have to worry about how they're going to be evaluated by others. And that's where, I mean, finding those people who are supportive is important, but I think also we have to think about how do we change the system to, to, mm. to lessen the power dynamics, to, to kind of mm -hmm. reduce some of those huge power differentials or that make the possibility of, of tenure, of getting tenure sort of less of a less of an unknown um, and mm. more of something that your entire department is working toward to help you get to that stage um, yeah, as opposed nice. to saying like we're just going to penalize you by either getting it or not getting it but like right. let's actually foster you to the point where we know that you're going to get there because we're investing in you from the from the start yeah i mean i i'm sure this is somewhere in your book because you seem to have covered every major topic <laughs> but something that i found like really useful is something both of you like uh, kind of alluded to near the beginning here which was when I started in grad school and I don't think I did this intentionally. I think I just got lucky that like I talked with a bunch of the like older students who like, for lack of a better term, like knew the gossip. Right. And like gossip is like bad and things, but like, I guess what I mean here is like, I, by just talking with them and hanging out, learned a little bit about like, who is a scary person? Who is a not so scary person? Like all these things that would have taken like years of like potentially career inducing mistakes or something. And was just like kind of gifted by just like mm -hmm. having a few casual conversations and not all of it was correct, which is like the, the difficult problem here. Um, but did I don't you, know, I found that really that useful. As an assistant professor or no? Not really like intentionally either, but like, I'm very fortunate that like I, so I'm not at a department for those of you who are listening, I'm in a school. So there are like, you know, if you ask everybody at my school, how many people work there, I think everyone would give you a different number, but there's like a hundred faculty members or something. Mm, so there are many different assistant professors. So I, I came in with a cohort of like six or seven assistant professors. And there's a bunch of people that had just got tenure that kind of looked like me. So I had, I was on easy street in terms of like getting information that helps me realize like what's a tenurable CV. Unlike, you know, someone that maybe is going into a department where there's like two full professors, two associates, right. And like, they're the only assistant, right? right? Like, who's your buddy then, right? Like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the things I'm also thinking about is I feel like as a grad student, I was like, okay, my professors are really busy. You know, everyone talks about oh, faculty being really busy. And I felt a little bit guilty about <laughs> asking, like, I guess the reason why I justified it in my head, why not asking for help is that I don't want to you know, put a burden onto people's times and because they're so busy and like, they're so gracious to give me five minutes. So like, how should I think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I would say it's really important for students to, to not feel guilty about needing their advisor's time. I mean, it's, certainly if you find yourself in a situation where you are overly dependent on one mentor or advisor, that's usually a good sign that it's time to expand your mentoring team or just your team of people in general that you're relying on. But, but it's important for students to know that they're not burdening faculty with questions or requests, especially if they need that information or support to be successful in the next steps in their career. I mean, it's, it's our job to be teachers and mentors, the, the problem is really not that, that we're busy, but rather that that work of being a teacher and mentor isn't as valued as it ought to be in academia. Mm. And that it's it's systematically devalued because of the way that the, the big rewards in academia are all tied to research, especially if we're talking about the kinds of institutions that typically have large graduate programs, PhD programs in, in particular, but also master's programs, that the faculty in those programs are often hired tenured, promoted, almost entirely based on their research. And so that disincentivizes mm -hmm. spending a great deal of time on teaching and mentoring. And so mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think what we need to be advocating for is that they really professors need to know how much time they their students really need from them so that they can then go back to the institution and say, no, look, I need a bigger percentage of my time to be allowed for service and teaching as opposed to having to spend X percentage of my time on research and being evaluated that way as well. And to be like really meta here uh, about like what's hidden curriculum and what do you learn along the way? Like even into graduate school and maybe this is like admitting too much, like I had no idea really how tenure was awarded. Like I under, I began to understand it was like due to like research productivity and like I learned of the existence of the top five and that there are these like five lottery ticket uh, <laughs> publications in economics. You get one, like you have tenure. But I always thought like, Oh, and also like research and teaching and things like must be important. And then like gradually I sort of learned and like, then, you know, I went up and it's like at many places, like that is not the case. Right. And like, then I thought back on interactions I had with assistant professors at universities like that. Like, I guess like Ashley Langer and Derek Lemoyne being two of them, uh, just to call out at Arizona who were incredibly generous with their time. Now that I look back at the experience, it was like, Oh my God, they're like pre-tenure at like a R1 trying to get these pubs and they would give that much time to their students. It's a, uh, it's crazy. It's, and I, I had no idea. Right. Yeah. So no, I was just very lucky to have these faculty. And that work just isn't rewarded the way that it ought to be. Um, yeah. I mean, because, I mean, it's, it comes from the financing of higher education that like all of our financing comes either from student tuition, which PhD students often don't pay tuition. And so they have very little leverage in that sense. Um, mm -hmm. And then also from research funding, from grant funding, from kind of outside supporters in that way. And so it's, it's there's very little external incentive um, for faculty to be good teachers and good mentors. And that just right. destroys the system when it comes yeah. to getting the support they need. And I think, it, I guess it's also hard to measure because you can think of it as measuring as inputs, number of hours and or outputs like success of the grad student, but both of those could be muddy with other types of information. So I, I guess I wouldn't even know how to like, I, I don't know if measuring is the right word, but like measure it, I guess. You yeah. Know? And especially getting back to the, the point about faculty picking winners and picking those students that come in seeming like they are going to be able to be successful with as little support as possible. And so that yeah. those founders make it really challenging to see, yeah. to measure accurately what the impact is. That's right. Um, it, so actually related to that question, when you were talking about uh, faculty and, and, and the efforts of mentoring, do you have some thoughts on how, faculty should pick their mentees. And what I'm thinking about this is I'm currently in a position where I love mentoring. I, I think mentoring is super fun. I think it's great. And I overdid it. I, <laughs> I like sign up for a bunch of different programs, you know, from different associations and I have a lot of mentees and I, and I love them and, and it's great. And I have a system for them. You have a podcast. Like, what? You have a podcast that's and basically about podcast, mentoring. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, but this year, you know, like new call for mentors comes up and I'm like, I actually don't want to sign up because I feel like it's not like I'm finishing my, there's not like the year it's gone. Now I'm not longer your mentor, you know, like we still keep these relationships. And so I'm thinking of that, that person that, you know, has that marginal decision of like, okay, do I want to include one more person? But there's a couple of people who went in. Do you have any, any, any thoughts on how to think about what are the priorities that I should be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would say making sure that you are the person who is best in a position to help that student and also helping those students who often who, who may struggle to find someone else. Um, so those are kind of the, the, the two factors that I often think about is like, what is my value added 
to for for a student? Am I there as their methods person? Am I I do a lot of qualitative research mostly, and so I, I, like if, if there's a student who has a mostly quantitative committee, um, but wants to add a qualitative component, and they really need someone who can advise them on how to add the qualitative mm -hmm. part of their dissertation, then I kind of have a set role for myself, and I know where I can fit in, and I can I know where I can help, um, and then also and so that's kind of where like. And is there someone else who, who could do that role or is there not someone else who could do that role? So that's oftentimes what I'm thinking about is sort of like, what role would I play for this student? Am I there mm -hmm. primarily um, as a feedback person, as a big ideas person, as someone who's gonna help them with networking? So mm -hmm. the more that I can get a sense of where I fit on their team, um, and then also kind of who else could they potentially have on that team? And if they're not able to find someone um, that I'm like, especially if there's someone that is not in my department or um, not someone that I'm kind of closely connected to otherwise. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have a question that's sort of in a different direction. So let's say you're a student uh, and you're interested in advocating for yourself, but like outside mm -hmm. of the, or, or maybe not outside of, but like in addition to um, this advisee sort of in the classroom relationship, so to speak, what other things should be on your radar just as sort of like broad hits or I guess specific tips too? Yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes people will say go to conferences, but I find conferences so intimidating for, for young scholars, for grad students and for junior professors even. I mean, thinking about like walking up to someone um, and like trying to introduce yourself to this big name scholar is super scary, at least for me. Um, I mean, I think if you're going to conferences, not trying to talk to the person who's presenting often, but talking to the other people in the audience. If you're at a talk, everybody else that went to that talk is there because they're interested in the same topic that you are. And so turning to the person nearby, maybe it's another grad student, maybe it's another mm -hmm. faculty member, and using that as a lower stakes way to start a conversation. So that's kind of one strategy is like using conferences, not necessarily to go to the receptions and feel like you have to kind of, because that can be awkward for so many of us, mm -hmm. um, or feeling like you have to go talk to the presenter, um, but using it to build those lateral connections instead. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing. And then I would also say, I mean, social media is a terrific space, especially for those folks who are struggling to find mentors or other kind of team players in their department. If, if you're struggling to find people who will really give you the level of support and, and advice and kind of encouragement that you need, I, academic Twitter, for example, is, I mean, it, it has its problems, um, but it's also the kind of place where you can build mentoring relationships, where you can find co-authors um, where you can join a conversation and feel supported and feel cheered on the work that mm -hmm. you're doing, um, mm -hmm. sometimes in ways that feel more supportive than what you can find in your department. Um, and, and especially if they're a student who ends up in a particularly toxic or problematic mentoring relationship, that can also be a way to help kind of find a bridge out um, mm -hmm. to, to figure out are there other places where you might be happier if you need to leave your program, if you need to find a different advisor, uh, the kind of knowing the field better, getting those kind of more personal connections um, than you might otherwise achieve at a conference or something like that, I think can be, can be really helpful. The more I talk about this topic, the more I'm like really appreciative of my advisor. <laughs> Shout out to my advisor, Kit Carpenter. Cause I feel like he did, I feel like he gave me a lot of time and gave me a lot of effort and a lot of like learn a lot of the pressure through him. And I feel like I got a lot of chicken in that, in that sense. So um, yeah, little shout out there. I just say, I agree. And it's like, so I talk about this with a lot of people that I went to grad school with that like, I didn't, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but like, I didn't realize, I don't think it's possible to realize how good or how bad you have it yeah. in the moment. Yeah. Cause you don't have that comparison. So like, I think back at Arizona, I'm like, oh my God, not only did I have such a good cohort of students, mm -hmm. but all the advisors, including my primary advisor, Price, who's been here before and other people were great. But like, it, it's so interesting now that like, I'll probably continue to learn 
good things that were done there that were just like totally hidden to me mm -hmm. the entire time. And, and I mean, like literally hidden, like, I don't even know, like conversations that were had that people had yeah. that, that changed away another interaction work that I was never aware of. So I don't know. I just, I'm continually surprised by uh, how difficult it is to, to create these types of like positive, I don't know, like institutions seems like too formal of a word, but like, that's kind of what they are that like, uh, you know, create student development relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah I don't know. Every week we like to ask our guests for our recommendation of the week. This can be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, a quote, a book, a kitchen recipe, anything that improves your life in a small way. Jessica, what is your recommendation of the week? Uh, I actually didn't think about this in advance. Um, okay. so I should have and didn't. Um, so I might need a minute here if you don't mind. Is this That's okay. okay? We can go with Alex first. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Alex, what is your recommendation of the week? All right. So I like free stuff. Uh, you know, I like open <laughs> software too. and things like that. Yeah. I like, you know, particularly if you send me free stuff. But um, I recently, I've, I've been like reorganizing my Zotero library, which is a free uh, um, way of organizing references and things. And I stumbled across this thing, which perhaps has existed for a while, but is new to me. Uh, and it's built off of Zotero. It's called ZBib. So if you go to zbib.org, uh, it will just help you make a bibliography very quickly if you're like not uh, uh, full scale into using Zotero or something. So if you're a student and you're you're sort of new. You don't have all your references managed in some like long lived thing, uh, but you are writing a paper and you're finding it very difficult to make your references at the last minute. You can make them very quickly uh, using zbib.org, which is built, I think, off of Zotero. Interesting. Cool. I don't think I've heard of it. I'll check it out. Is it a software then? Or is it? It's a, sorry. It's a website that you can go to and it's free. Um, it's like open source. So it, it'll search by like URL or ISBN or DOI um, and it will like help create. Uh, the bibliography and like whatever format you need. And then like, once you're done, you can uh, uh, easily switch formats mm -hmm. at the, at the end. That's awesome. Yeah. And I can definitely build on Alex's suggestion with my suggestion um, and say that Zotero is a, an amazing resource, not only with ZBib, but also with its integration with Google Scholar and with Microsoft Word. Mm -hmm. um, the way that you can, I showed my grad students recently how you can um, pull up Google Scholar, have the Google, Google Chrome extension for Zotero kind of linked in your browser already and kind of one-click add things to Zotero um, in ways that um, kind of automatically pull it. And then you can open up your Word document, have the Zotero plugin in your Word document, uh, click add citation, and then like instantly create a bibliography or citations, in-text citations that are already formatted and that you can change around the formatting. Um, the, the number of free software tools that are out there. Um, and if you don't know about them, I highly recommend checking Checking out your university IT services page, um, they often have tremendously useful kind of how-to guides and um, links and free software in general. Um, it, oftentimes, students sometimes don't always know what they're paying for when they pay things like student technology fees. Um, but oftentimes, <laughs> because they're giving you access to a whole bunch of software that would otherwise cost a whole lot more money right. um, if they had to pay for it themselves. So definitely, um, especially if you're new to graduate school, um, taking a look at the university resources, taking a look at the, the software that they have available, the kinds of tools and tips that you can find online. That's awesome. Just to uh, add a little plug in for Sebastian here. So Sebastian just recently took over as I think like editor is the appropriate word for the American Society of Health Economists newsletter. So fancy, fancy. Uh, and in a previous article that I wrote for them with Sebastian's help, uh, we did a whole thing about how to use Zotero to manage references for your research. And we'll put a link in for there. Uh, it focuses mainly on how to do the plugin with LaTeX. But like uh, Jess said, you can link it up with Word just fine. Yeah. 
And the extra, like, on top reg, the cherry at the top that I do with Zotero <laughs> and all this stuff, especially with Word, is that I have decided to map one of my mouse clicks to include a citation when I'm in Word. So I literally type in, click, type the author's name, click, and then keep going. And it's, like, so buttery smooth that I'm, like, <laughs> the fact that I have not done this for, like, seven years, it's a little bit appalling. So, like, it's it's been a really nice. Um my my recommendation of the week is to check out your local buy nothing Facebook group. So this is only for the people that have Facebook. Um, if those remain <laughs> for our listeners, but it essentially is a is a it's a group that exists nationwide. But um, the idea is locally based people giving free stuff because they don't need it anymore to other people that um, are in that same community. So you would post something. And then some people say like, oh, I want it or I want it. And then you pick among those sort of people. Um, you could also pick up stuff. And it's a great way of if you are into recycling or not necessarily throwing stuff in the garbage, but maybe giving it to somebody else because they can have another use. Great way to do it. For example, we needed soil for some plants, but we didn't want to buy a huge bag. Somebody was giving like some soil because they had some extra. We took it. It's great. Um, so I love using buy nothing for those like little temporary stuff and also to give some of the stuff that I may not use anymore. So check out buy nothing on Facebook. All right. Well, thanks for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at, at Jessica Calarco. Uh, and then my website is jessicacalarco.com. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you folks. That's all what we have for you today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for tuning in. Bye. Thank you. It was great. Thanks. Right. Yeah, that thank was a fun you. conversation. <laughs>